Well, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning, bright and early. Uh, Did you know that every January, in the blistering cold of a Minnesota winter, 30 mushers, along with their teams of nine sled dogs each, they strap on all the determination they could muster, and they strike out on a 500-mile sled dog race across uh, Minnesota and part of Canada. In 1987, the first woman entered the race. Uh, We're talking pioneer kind of woman. Uh, They said it was impossible for her uh, to win or maybe even finish. Well, she pressed on through the bitter cold and the howling blizzards, uh, the dark nights and the grueling days, and against all odds, this woman won the race. And they said she couldn't, but she did. And so she was interviewed by a reporter after the race and said, how did you do it? And she said, well, I knew others had done it before me, so I knew I could do it. There's nothing as powerful as an example, is there? In 1952, they said it was impossible for an ice skater to do a triple twisting jump. And then in the Olympics of that same year, Dick Button completed a triple toe loop for the first time. Now it's a jump that is mastered by all competitors. There's nothing as compelling as a powerful example. You know, that's the idea that Paul had in mind when he picked up his pen and began writing in Philippians 3.17. In fact, if you turn with me to Philippians 3.17, I want us to discover together how a powerful example can impact your joy in your walk with Christ. So you could follow along with me on the screen or your Bibles if you brought them. He begins this way. He says, brethren... Join in following my example, and, and, the, and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. Now, does it sound like to you that Paul's being a little arrogant here? I mean, notice how he begins, join and following my example. Would you be so bold as to come to a friend and say, hey, I want you to follow me and let me be an example to you? Would you? Well, I think Paul understands something about Christianity that we don't. I mean, Paul seems to understand that the Christian life is not effectively taught in classrooms. It's not discovered by digging deeply into doctrine. What Paul seems to understand is the Christian life is not so much taught as it is caught. It's caught by being associated with compelling role models. In fact, look at that word example used in the text. Did you know that's the only place in the entire Bible this word is used? It means to make an impression to, to leave an imprint on something. Like I would take this lump of clay here and press in this key and leave an impression. I mean, can you see what Paul is saying at the beginning of our text? 
He's telling us, let those who have a passionate walk with Christ press into your life. And not just in their words only, but in their passion for Christ and in the questions that they ask that probe and leave an impression on your soul. I think if Paul were here, he would probably look you in the eye, look me in the eye and say, who's pressing in your life? Who's leaving their mark on you? Who by their passion for Christ is encouraging you to live biblically? Or he might put it this way. I mean, who can you point to and say, I want to live like that? I admire their passion for Christ. I love what they're doing with their kids and how they're engaging them. I love what I see going on in their family. I need to be associated with that. I need to catch that perspective. In fact, uh, one author likened not having an example to follow to this. It's like loosening. Oh, I thought I put it on the screen. I didn't. Um, he, he says, it's like loosening the plug in the oil pan of your soul and draining all of life's perspective out of your life. You see, Paul seems to, to know that, that a man left to confer only with himself will always draw conclusions about himself and his world that border on fantasy. In other words, the Christian life is never meant to be lived in isolation. It's caught by rubbing shoulders with other people, by watching those who live life well so that they can leave their imprint on your life, like this imprint left by this key in the clay. Now, you may be thinking, I don't know if I want somebody pressing into my life like that. I think I'm doing just fine. Why would I do that? Well, that's the question Paul answers in the next verse. Look at verse 18. He says, For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. Now, there's some debate as to whether Paul is talking about a Christ follower here, or he's talking about those who don't have a personal relationship with Christ. I mean, notice he says, their end is destruction. That word destruction simply means waste. In other words, it implies a life that has been wasted, a life that has not left a lasting impression. But notice he indicates he's weeping over these people. I mean, at the beginning of chapter 3, when Paul described those who didn't know Christ, the adjectives he used to describe them are dogs and evildoers. But here he's weeping. I mean, could he be weeping here because these people are followers of Christ who dropped out of the race that Chad was talking about last week? And as a result... They're living wasted lives. But but look at that last phrase. Enemies of the cross of Christ. Now that has to refer to those who don't know Christ. I mean, could a Christ follower be an enemy of the cross of Christ? Well, I want you to see how James describes Christ followers in James 4, chapter 4. He puts it this way. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Wow. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow, that's harsh. I think whether Paul's talking about Christ followers or talking about those that don't know Christ personally, I mean, his message is quite clear. And his message is that friendship with the world system of values can make you an enemy of the cross of Christ. I mean, can you see what Paul is doing here? I mean, he is talking to these Christians in Philippi and to us as well, and he's telling us that we need to follow his example. Now, why? It's because you can be easily persuaded by a different system of values, a worldly system of values. You see, Paul understands that the decisions that you and I make on a day-to-day basis are based on our values. You've all seen on TV the game show, The Price is Right. I mean, you've got contestants that are competing against one another, guessing the price of different items. And if you, can, if you know that a, price, the, a can of peas costs about $1.79 each, and you can distinguish that from the price of a car, which is $23,000, you'll do well. Now, if you get nervous or get confused and can't distinguish the difference, then you lose not only the game, but you kind of lose your reputation as being smart before a national audience because you look like an idiot. Now, on that game show, sometimes they, they'll put four or five items on a table and they'll ask the contestants to rank those items from uh, the lowest price, the least expensive, to the most expensive. Uh, like a can of peas, a microwave oven, a trip to Tahiti, and a new car. But really, The Price is Right is a game of values, isn't it? Now, I want you to imagine right now that you are playing The Price is Right. Only the items that we're going to value are telling the truth, winning the lottery, loving God, being promoted at work. Which of those has the highest value? Uh, Which is more valuable, telling the truth or winning the lottery? I mean, which would you choose, honesty or a million dollars? I mean, what do you think has greater value? Is it loving God or getting promoted at work? I mean, the decision you make is based upon your values. Now, when we discuss values, we tend to discuss it in terms of behavior, but I think we need to distinguish between behavior, which is what you do, and values, which is why you do what you do. Values, they govern our attitudes, our thoughts, our decisions, our decisions, and Based on those values, then you end up having certain behaviors. So values kind of lie under the surface. They're invisible. You can't see them. But even though they're invisible, they are real and powerful in determining behavior. But you also need to know they're subtle, extremely subtle. In fact, I want to see if you can pick out the values in a couple of commercials. What's the value in this first commercial? When I have a brand new hairdo With my eyelashes all in curls Well, I 
What value did you see? If you buy from the gap, you can be like Sarah Jessica Parker. I mean, life can be like a party and gay and happy and you'll dance, people will hand you flowers. I mean, you can look like her. Now, did you notice they didn't tell you that it was a Gap commercial to the very end? They want you to buy into the value first and then link it with the product. What values do you see in this commercial? When you came into this world, we tumbled in head first. All arms and legs, looking everywhere, moving everywhere. You roll your eyes and ears took you. And little by little, you became you. You found tools to satisfy your curiosity because you wanted to see more and do more. And there was something to be found in everything. And little by little it changed. People told you things. Where to go, what to do, what not to do. Little by little the world started to feel smaller. Only it isn't. You're still here. And you're still you. The horizons haven't gone anywhere. The tools you need are right here. Throw yourself at the world head first. Again, introducing the all new G-Terror. What values did you see? You, you want to be the adventurer you were created to be? You want freedom from your responsibilities? Buy a Jeep. You'll gain the freedom you deserve. Notice how, again, they didn't link uh, the the product until the very end after you bought into the value. You see, the values you see in those commercials are powerful. Now, those commercials are designed to sell products, but at the same time, they end up selling a subtle shift in our values. Did you know the average person in America watches three to four hours of television a day? That means by the time your kids leave home, they've digested over 15,000 hours of TV. And the commercials, as well as the programming, is shot through with values just like that. So Paul wants us to understand the decisions we make every day are based upon values, but he encourages us to see that buying into worldly values can cause you to live a wasted life. Look at the second half of verse 18. That they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Now, what's interesting is in order to see the process that Paul is talking about here, we've got to take that verse and turn it upside down. In order to understand what Paul is getting at, we've got to read this verse backwards. Look back at the verse. You'll see what I mean. Notice the downward progression. It begins with what? Well, setting your mind on earthly things. I mean, I see that from time to time in my office. Over 30 years of being a pastor, someone will come in and say, uh, you know, I, I'm not happy in my marriage. But we have grown out of love. I'd be happier over here in this relationship. I mean, kids will be okay. Kids are resilient. Won't I be a better parent if I'm happy? 
Now, did you know that's a humanistic philosophy that says man is the center of the universe? Truth is relative, and what matters is my individual happiness. And it appeals to our flesh, and we buy into that thinking without even engaging our mind. But the question I have is, whatever happened to the value of commitment, the nobility of working through difficulties in life, uh, the hard work of deepening a relationship? I mean, sticking in your marriage and working it through for a lifetime can save you from toxic self-absorption. There's value in that. But we're shot through with a philosophy that says what matters is what makes me happy. And what makes me happy now is to step out of this relationship and into that one over there. And the question I have is, what do you think would have happened at the cross if personal happiness had been a value that Jesus adhered to? Or we say what matters is what makes me feel good, and what makes me feel good right now is to ignore my responsibilities as a dad. Instead, get on the Internet and take a little mental fantasy trip. Did you know that's a hedonistic philosophy that says I pursue pleasure and I ignore the consequences? And In fact, one of the great ironies of our day is it's... We affirm that philosophy of pursuing pleasure and ignoring the consequences, but we fail to see where the decisions we make lead. We fail to see where that philosophy breeds problems in our society, like a generation of kids on drug abuse, or alcohol abuse, or sex addiction, or alcohol rehabilitation, which all leads to despair in a person's life. So so it all begins, Paul says, by what? Setting your mind on earthly things. Then notice, their glory is in their shame. In other words, they become proud of the very things they ought to be ashamed of. So you got a person like Wilt Chamberlain, who writes a book a decade or so ago called A View from Above, where he talks about his sexual exploits, and he brags about sleeping with a thousand different women. And he's invited on talk shows. And people applaud him. They should feel ashamed. I mean, there should be shame seen in a life that has been self-absorbed. And then Paul says their God becomes their appetite. That's what the word belly refers to. In other words, the very thing they gave into begins to drive them. It becomes like an addiction. It, It appeals to their flesh, their own lust. And so to talk to this person about uh, the value of self-sacrifice, the commitment required in a marriage relationship, uh, living a life with integrity is like speaking a foreign language to them. They can't comprehend what you're saying. But the tragedy is what happens next. He says their end is destruction. In other words, their life is wasted. Remember, that's what the word destruction means. It means wasted. I mean, they could have lived a life of purpose and honor, engaged with God, but since they ignored the biblical values and embraced worldly values, their life has little meaning and little eternal impact. But it's really more than that. As a result, it says that they actually work against God. They become enemies of the cross. And I've seen it happen time and time again with Christians in the church, people making decisions void of biblical values 
and they end up embracing a system of belief that's blatantly opposed to God, but is as subtle as those commercials I just showed you. Now, Paul says you don't have to live like that. In fact, he encourages us to live by a higher standard, a more noble way that will actually enhance your joy in your relationship with God. He says we need to focus on heavenly values. Look at verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that it that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The first thing I want you to notice is that Paul says we are citizens of a different place. Remember, it doesn't say that we will be citizens of heaven one day. That's not what it says. It says we are citizens of heaven. Present tense. Right now, and as Christ followers, because we're citizens of heaven, we are to adopt a different value system. Uh, one that is a heavenly value system that comes from our heavenly citizenship. We are to live by a different standard than those around us. A standard that's more noble. I mean, I think immediately of Bob Christian. Bob Christian was a fullback in the NFL. He played a few years for um, Chicago and then Atlanta. But even though Bob was in the NFL, he was a member of an elite group of players. Bob was a virgin. In an interview with the Chicago Sun-Times, he said this, I'm not ashamed of it. It's out of choice and out of the grace of God that I'm a virgin. Now, doesn't that sound like a statement that's a throwback on a bygone era? He continues, I'm very thankful that I still am because when I get married, I have something special to give my wife. I think that's God's plan for you to be committed to one person all your life. Now, that's a man who's decided to live more nobly by adhering to a godly standard. A heavenly standard that reflects his heavenly citizenship. I also think of of, um, Kenny Ness, a friend of mine I've known for 20 years. When Kenny was, they were expecting their first child, a son, and then the child was born, his wife, Dee, said, I want to quit my job. I want to stay home with my child. I mean, she seemed to know instinctively that a child needs a significant connection with mom, especially during those beginning formative years. The problem was, Kenny earned, I mean, Dee earned more money than Kenny. And they had just bought a new house. They're in debt up to their eyeballs. They'd bought all the toys. Any way you sliced it, there's no way that she could quit her job. So she continued to work. Then the second son came along. And because of her conviction, these conviction, that she wanted to stay home with her kids, and because of the godly value that Kenny placed on honoring his wife and on motherhood, knowing that no, no child care worker could possibly love his boys like their mom, Dee, they did whatever they could to make it possible for her to stay home. 
So they put their house on the market. Uh, They sold the boat. They sold the two wave runners. They downgraded the cars to used cars. They saved every way they could. Kenny went on a job search, found another job where he could earn a little more money. So they bought a cheaper house so that they could keep their expenses low. Now, those were difficult, gut-wrenching decisions that they had to make. And they made those changes because they decided that living by the value of their heavenly citizenship was critical and more important than their standard of living, the size of their house, their status in the community. And then they compared that, when they compared those things, to Dee staying home because she just felt a yearning to do that, to be with their sons. There was just no comparison. They made some of the hardest decisions I've ever seen a couple make. In fact, Kenny and Dee are my heroes because what they ended up doing is bucking the cultural value system of materialism and embracing a biblical, heavenly value system of family and connection and relationship. You see, Paul wants us to know that our citizenship is really in a different place, but he encourages us that living by biblical values actually has a preserving effect on your life. In other words, it will protect your relationships. It's going to preserve your home, your business, your reputation. It's going to keep a teenage girl from having to go to her parents and saying, Mom and Dad, I'm pregnant. It'll stop a married couple from ever having to discuss who's going to get custody of the kids. It'll keep a businessman from having to tell his employees they no longer have a job because of his unethical business practices. It has a preserving effect on life. You see, being a Christ follower, we are to live by a different standard, a more noble standard. A Christian bases a value system that says he empties himself in order to be filled. He admits that he is wrong in order to be declared right. He's stronger when he is weakest and forced to rely upon God. That he dies in order to live, he forsakes in order to have, and he gives away in order to keep. It's living by a different, more nobler standard, God's standard. Now, if you really want to see the practical uh, impact of values of living by a different standard, all you've got to do is look at money. Did you know that uh, when difficulties enter the world, Turmoil enters, the value of the dollar tends to rise. I mean, investors, when things are peaceful, investors will tend to invest in other foreign currencies. But let the world get in turmoil and they all, what, retreat back to the dollar. And so the value rises. Now, why is that? Is it because green is a more secure color for money? Is it because of the paper our dollars are printed on? No, the value is not found in the money itself. The value is found in the strength and stability of the U.S. government. I mean, 200 years of experience has shown investors that the U.S. government is strong and predictable, especially when other countries are facing turmoil and economic disaster. 
Now, now the value of God's standard is not found in the standard itself. It's found in God, who is strong and reliable and stable, even when everything else in the universe may be unraveling around you. Whenever you speak the truth, do the truth, live the truth, you're trading and investing in the strength and stability of God Himself. And every time you lie or trade in deceit, you're investing in a currency that, well, is worthless as monopoly money. It feels like you have a lot. You can count it. But you soon discover that the pretend money of untruth really, it has no real value in the real world. Now, there is a catch to all this. And the catch is that the reality of our heavenly values will only be completely understood in the future. The values will be seen when the reality of verse 21 goes into effect. Look there with me. It says, who will transform our lowly bodies that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. That word subdue means to arrange in rank. You could say arrange according to value. See, the values you and I are going to live by, heavenly values, will seem foolish to the world around us. Uh, But they'll only make complete and total sense in the future one day when we arrive at home. So it means while we're down here on this earth, we have to walk by faith. Our citizenship is found in a different land. You know, for years, Monterey, California, was called a pelican's paradise. Fishermen would come in, they would clean their catch in the bay there and throw the leftovers overboard, and the pelicans would just have a feast. Pelicans grew fat and lethargic and sassy. They totally forgot how to fish. They just simply showed up at the end of the day and enjoyed a free meal. Then the city of Monterey um, passed an ordinance that didn't allow fishermen to do that. They had to dispose of their waste a different way. But no one told the pelicans. They kept hanging around looking for their free handout. It didn't come. It didn't come. They didn't go fish for themselves. They didn't forage for food. They just sat there in the water. That's all they knew. And they began to grow gaunt, and some of them starved to death. And so to avoid an ecological disaster, the town fathers of Monterey did something unique. They went about 500 miles south and got a southern pelican and brought that southern cousin up and planted him in the middle of the Monterey variety. And this southern pelican, I mean, he didn't miss a lick. He immediately began fishing for himself. He began foraging for food. The other pelicans are standing around looking at him wondering, what is that? And eventually they began to catch on. And they began doing the same. You see, what Paul is saying here is, follow my example. 
My example of living by heavenly values. And when you do, you need to know you're trading in heavenly currency that's backed by the strength and stability of God Himself. And that will impact your joy like nothing else. Father, thank You. Thank You for this hard-hitting passage. It leaves us feeling a little on edge, a little uncomfortable, but by faith we know that Your values matter. And even though we can't see clearly from where we sit today, we know one day we will see clearly. And would You give us the insight to see Your values as we read the Scripture and then give us the courage to implement them in our lives. I ask you to do that in your powerful and authoritative name. Amen. I want to thank you for coming. If, if you came wanting to give, offering boxes or out in the hall, and if you're new at Horizon, we'd love for you to stop by the hearth room, third door on the left, and uh, we have some people down there that would love to put a name with a face. And we'll see you back next week.